Hi, listeners. Today, we have another audio article from the 80,000 Hours website that we think will be of interest to lots of people. It's by my wonderful colleague, Louisa Rodriguez, who reads the article herself and who some of you will recall from episode 116, Louisa Rodriguez on why global catastrophes seem unlikely to kill us all. And from when she co-hosted with me for episode 131, Louis Dartnell on getting humanity to bounce back faster in a post-apocalyptic world. The article she's reading is called My Experience with Imposter Syndrome and How to Partly Overcome It. And since it was published in April, many people have gotten in touch to say either that it resonated with them or that reading it had really helped them out. So we thought we would share it with you all here. If you like this, you might well also want to listen to our single most popular episode ever, episode 100, on having a successful career with depression, anxiety, and imposter syndrome, which was hosted by the show's producer, Kieran Harris. All right, without further ado, here's Louisa Rodriguez. In a nutshell, I have imposter syndrome, and I suspect many other people trying to have a big impact with their career do too. For a long time, imposter syndrome massively limited my impact by causing me to rule out potentially impactful options and affecting my day-to-day job performance and satisfaction. But through talk therapy and other tools, I've mostly overcome it. If you think you might struggle with imposter syndrome, tackling it might be one of the most important forms of personal development you can do. It was for me. I felt like an imposter since my first year of university. I was accepted to a university that I believed was well out of my league, my stretch school. I'd gotten good grades in high school, but I'd never seen myself as especially smart. I wasn't selected for gifted programs in elementary school, like some of my friends were, and my standardized test scores were in the bottom half of those attending my university. I was pretty confident I got into the university because of some fluke in the system. My top hypothesis was that I was admitted as part of an affirmative action initiative, and that belief stayed with me and was amplified during the decade that followed. Throughout that decade, there was evidence that I really was good at my work at different points, but I could always come up with an explanation for why the evidence was unreliable. For example, as an undergraduate, I was the only first-year student in my biology department to get a research internship at the Mayo Clinic, one of the most prestigious biomedical institutions in the U.S. But I felt I only got the internship because I'd met the right person at the right time and tricked them into thinking I was smarter than I was by saying smart-sounding things. Likewise, during my final year of university, I was given an award for being the top performer in my sociology department. But I believe that was just because the professors liked me and thought I was nice. My feelings didn't end at university. They came back when I was offered an internship at GiveWell after graduating. But despite the fact that I had completed multiple work tests and had interviewed with the CEO, I told myself I only got that internship because my resume made me look more competent than I was because of years of tricking other people into giving me internships and awards. More recently, I published a series of blog posts on nuclear war on the Effective Altruism Forum while working at Rethink Priorities, and I got a lot of positive feedback. But I also got some negative feedback about some mistakes I'd made in my analysis, which, to me, confirmed that anyone reading my work closely would realize the work was riddled with mistakes and had flawed reasoning. And then, when Will McCaskill, apparently impressed by my nuclear war research, asked me to do research into civilizational collapse for his upcoming book, I felt like even more of a fraud. Like I'd tricked Will into thinking I was a good researcher by publishing low-quality research that passed as good. Rather than assuaging my insecurities, my successes actually made me feel more ashamed because they meant that I was fooling more and more people in increasingly high-stakes roles. Now that I was being asked to do things that I thought really mattered, 
I was really going to be letting people down. Writing this now, I'm astounded by the mental gymnastics I was performing to maintain the belief that I was fooling everyone. Looking back, I'm proud of the achievements in that list. And even long before I was working on those impactful projects, and even if I'd never worked on things like research for Will McCaskill, there was and would have been plenty of reason to think that I had something to contribute. But somehow, I believe that I was both terrible at my job and also excellent at the skill of seeming great at it. I believed I was both much less competent than my exceptionally smart colleagues and also that they weren't smart enough to realize I was a fake. Some truly ridiculous contradictions. Thankfully, I've come a long way in overcoming my imposter syndrome. But I've met a lot of people struggling with the same things in the process. People who have noticed ways their imposter syndrome has seriously curtailed their impact and their well-being. And I've come to suspect that imposter syndrome might be especially common and especially harmful among people trying to have high-impact careers. So here I explore why that might be, why it matters, and concrete things my friends, colleagues, and I have found helpful in overcoming imposter syndrome. How imposter syndrome has capped my impact so far. My imposter syndrome has had really significant effects on my day-to-day work and productivity. For example, when I started at Rethink Priorities, I was so worried my manager would realize I wasn't actually any good at research that I worked long hours to compensate for my perceived incompetence. To be clear, this was driven by my own anxiety, not by anything my manager did or said. Working such long hours got me close to burnout, plus a case of repetitive strain injury that still flares up four years later. And while doing that research at Rethink, I caveated everything in my write-up so heavily that no one reading them would be able to tell what I really thought. They couldn't figure out what I really thought. They couldn't realize I didn't know what I was talking about. Similarly, while working as a research assistant for Will McCaskill, I procrastinated showing him my research drafts for months, which made me lose out on valuable feedback from him early in my research when it would have been most useful. And since joining the 80,000 Hours web team as a writer seven months ago, I've avoided writing articles for the website, preferring projects focused on user experience and web analytics instead, out of fear that I'd be outed as a bad writer. Until now, progress. What's more, my imposter syndrome also made it near impossible for me to think clearly about how to have the highest impact career possible, to look at my strengths and weaknesses head on in order to work out which impactful roles I might actually be well-suited for. I simultaneously hoped I was competent enough to have a high-impact career and was terrified I'd fail if I tried. And the only way to avoid the painful reality that I might not be good enough to have an impactful career was to make sure I wasn't being too ambitious. This meant almost never applying for impactful roles I thought I might not get. And it meant shying away from more responsibility in the roles I did get. For example, after working as Will McCaskill's research assistant for about six months, Will asked me to be his chief of staff but I didn't want the job. I felt that only someone more competent than me should be doing a job that important, someone who wasn't faking it like I was. I ended up accepting the role in the end, but the feeling that I shouldn't be doing such a high-stakes role stayed with me. Likewise, when I was given the opportunity to give grants to help reduce the probability of nuclear winter, I turned it down. I didn't want myself or anyone else to realize I wasn't any good at grant-making. I think it's possible those are big mistakes, Rather than pursue an ambitious goal like nuclear grant-making with some chance of failure, I chose to guarantee failure by not trying in the first place. At least then I could maintain the belief that maybe I'd succeeded if I'd tried. How I partly overcame imposter syndrome. 
Despite being promoted to Will McCaskill's chief of staff, I was more confident than ever that I was a fraud. No amount of positive feedback I got could convince me otherwise. Never mind the fact that this meant simultaneously believing that Will McCaskill was both brilliant and dumb enough to be fooled by a dummy like me. These worries took my anxiety to new heights and caused my first major depressive episode. While discussing my fears with a friend, they hypothesized that imposter syndrome, on top of being at the root of my depression and anxiety, might also be the single biggest factor limiting my impact. I was sure they were wrong. Sure, that might be the case for people who are really suffering from imposter syndrome, but I'm an actual imposter, I thought. But the idea that something like imposter syndrome might meaningfully cap my ability to have a bigger impact felt important enough that I decided to explore it. I started seeing a therapist who specializes in anxiety, depression, perfectionism, and imposter syndrome, which are often linked together and certainly were for me. My therapist recommended we use cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, to understand and address the issues. First, we explored how the behaviors I thought were protecting me from being outed as an imposter were actually reinforcing the imposter syndrome. By doing things that would ensure no one else would realize I was a fraud or have it confirmed for myself, I was also making it harder for myself to get and believe evidence that I wasn't one. For example, by working excessively without telling my colleagues, any praise I got on my work could be chalked up to my long hours rather than my abilities. Second, we looked at how my low self-esteem biased my thinking in ways that made it really difficult to develop an accurate view of myself. For example, through things like catastrophizing, assuming the worst is true or the worst will happen without evidence. For example, I didn't get the job I applied for, so I'll probably never get an impactful job. All or nothing thinking. Thinking in black and white terms when there's lots of gray in between. For example, if I'm not a brilliant writer, I'm a terrible one. Unrealistic standards. Having an unrealistically high bar for success. For example, I'm not good at my job unless every project I work on is perfect. Selective attention. Focusing only on negative evidence. For example, a mix of positive and negative feedback in a performance review translates into, I'm doing a bad job. Overgeneralizing. Taking evidence about one thing and applying it to a broader set of things. For example, I gave a talk and it didn't go well. I must be bad at giving talks. Discounting positive evidence. Finding reasons not to believe positive evidence. For example, I only got into a top-tier graduate program because I spent twice as long as other candidates on my research sample. Scanning. Searching for evidence of the thing we fear. For example, reliving memories of interviews with experts to focus on what went poorly. Jumping to conclusions. Assuming a certain, often extreme, conclusion from only a small amount of information that could mean lots of different things. For example, interpreting a lack of explicitly positive feedback from a colleague on your work as a sign that they thought it was bad overall. I found I was doing almost all of these things. I was also applying them asymmetrically. There was one set of standards for myself and a whole separate set, a more charitable and generous set for everyone else. And together, my unhelpful behaviors and my biased thinking meant I was locked into a self-reinforcing imposter syndrome cycle. Here's what that cycle's looked like for me. At one point, I was doing research into nuclear war as my first project in a new global priorities research job. I had the underlying belief that I wasn't good enough to do global priorities research. 
and that underlying belief led to negative predictions. If I publish my research into nuclear war, people will find holes in the thinking and calculations. That led to a self-protective rule. I'm going to spend six months trying to make the research perfect. I got lots of positive feedback and some negative feedback. And then my biased thinking came in. I did some catastrophizing. The negative feedback confirmed that I was bad at global priorities research. And then I also discounted positive evidence. The only reason I got positive feedback is because I spent six months on the project. Someone else would have done much better work in less time. And that biased thinking confirmed that underlying belief about myself, that I wasn't a good enough global priorities researcher. After understanding how my imposter syndrome was a self-perpetuating cycle, my therapist and I made a plan for me to start trying to get real, incontrovertible evidence about my abilities. No more hiding behind long hours and caveats and self-deprecation. To do this, we came up with experiments that would break the imposter syndrome cycle by abandoning one of my self-protective behaviors or challenging my biased thoughts. For example, take out all the unnecessary caveats in my next write-up. Share an early outline or draft with my manager. Take on a project I'm not sure I'll nail. Ask for explicit negative feedback on my work. Tell my manager exactly how long it takes me to do my research task this week. Each time I did these experiments, I got clarity on what my actual strengths and weaknesses were. Sometimes this was in the form of non-feedback. For example, in response to telling my manager exactly how long I spent on a report, they never said what I feared they would. Something like, you spent that long on this crap? Sometimes I got positive feedback. For example, a number of people have told me they liked my 80,000 Hours podcast episode with Rob Wiblin, even though I was sure it went terribly after recording it. And sometimes I got negative feedback. For example, at my request, my manager gave me some pretty substantial negative feedback about my research ability. That wasn't an easy process. Unsurprisingly, the positive feedback felt wonderful and the negative feedback felt kind of devastating. But both were necessary to develop more accurate views of my abilities. It took a lot of work to do both. One, update the right amount in response to the feedback, internalizing the positive, not catastrophizing about the negative. And two, come to terms with the fact that I was sometimes finding out I wasn't as good at a given type of work as I really wanted to be. Using the CBT tool called a stop really helped the latter. But for better or worse, all of the feedback, feedback I'd been trying desperately to avoid before that point, allowed me to think more critically about how to have a bigger impact given my actual strengths and weaknesses. And I made a lot of progress. I learned that I'm a good but not phenomenal researcher. And I worked on accepting that that didn't mean I wasn't a good or worthwhile person or that I couldn't contribute. I also learned that I'm pretty great at project management and data analysis. In this way, addressing my imposter syndrome was fundamentally a truth-seeking exercise. And just like it's crucially important to be open, curious, and truth-seeking when forming a judgment on what the world's most pressing problems are, it's crucially important to be open, curious, and truth-seeking when forming a judgment about what you might or might not be capable of to address those pressing problems. How common is imposter syndrome? A meta-analysis of 62 studies found that estimates of the prevalence of imposter syndrome ranged from 9% to 82% and affects both men and women, though it may be more common in women, as well as people of all ages, though it may decrease with age. Some indication that imposter syndrome is common in the effective altruism community 
is that when 80,000 Hours, former chief of staff, now CEO, Howie, discussed his imposter syndrome publicly with Kieran Harris on the 80,000 Hours podcast, the episode quickly became the podcast's most popular episode ever, by a long way. It wouldn't be surprising to me if imposter syndrome were actually more common among people trying hard to do the most good they can, for a few reasons. Ambitious goals. The careers we think are most likely to help as many people as possible tend to require a lot of ambition. Often, the more ambitious your career path is, the more likely it is you'll be able to truly move the needle on a pressing problem. But if you're aiming that high, it makes sense that you might have a lot of doubt about your ability to achieve your ambitious goals. An impressive community. We have helped build a community of people trying to do a lot of good with their careers. And we focused on reaching especially capable people with the hope that they'll be able to use their talents to making progress on the world's most pressing problems. But being surrounded by such impressive people can mean frequently comparing yourself to exceptionally gifted people. So it's no surprise that being a part of that community can exacerbate imposter syndrome, as well as insecurities of other kinds. Personality traits. More speculatively, I suspect people motivated to do as much good as they can with their careers might be more likely to have personality traits that make them more predisposed to imposter syndrome. Traits like high intelligence, perfectionism, conscientiousness, ambition, and neuroticism, especially anxiety, guilt, and shame. Philosophical views. Lots of people aiming to do as much good as possible are inspired by so-called demanding worldviews, such as consequentialism, the idea that it's always morally better to do the thing that creates better outcomes. For some people, that can mean self-worth becomes tied to exceptionally high moral standards, which can sometimes, but not always, feed into an imposter syndrome cycle by both raising your standards and making the idea that you might not meet them even more distressing. Do you have imposter syndrome? We're obviously not in the business of diagnosing mental health concerns, and we're big proponents of seeking professional support. That said, to get a sense of whether you have imposter syndrome characteristics, you can use an imposter syndrome screening tool like the Clance Imposter Syndrome Scale. You'll read 20 statements and indicate how often the statement feels true to you on a scale of 1 to 5, and then calculate your total score. A few example statements. I have often succeeded on a test or task, even though I was afraid that I would not do well before I undertook the task. I avoid evaluations if possible and have a dread of others evaluating me. When people praise me for something I've accomplished, I'm afraid I won't be able to live up to their expectations of me in the future. I sometimes think I obtained my present position or gained my present success because I happened to be in the right place at the right time or knew the right people. I feel bad and discouraged if I'm not the best, or at least very special, in situations that involve achievement. Do any of those statements ring true? If so, I'd encourage you to answer the complete questionnaire on your own. You can find a link to it on our website. Or does that sound like someone you know? If so, consider sending them this article. How might imposter syndrome affect the impact of your career? I know firsthand how terrible imposter syndrome can feel. I spent years feeling ashamed of being inadequate, guilty for tricking people into thinking I was more competent than I was, and terrified of being found out at any moment. In my view, those painful feelings are reason enough to make addressing your imposter syndrome a top priority. No one deserves to feel that way. But on top of that, there's a strong case for addressing imposter syndrome just in terms of increasing the positive impact you can have with your career. 
Imposter syndrome can hold you back from doing the things you are absolutely capable of doing to help others. To work out how to have the biggest impact possible with your career, you need to answer, how are you best placed to help solve the world's most pressing problems? What are your strengths and weaknesses, and how do they affect what roles you'd excel in? Imposter syndrome is fundamentally about the disconnect between your beliefs about your abilities and your actual abilities. So it often makes it impossible to think realistically and accurately about what your career options are. This has real implications for how impactful your career is. Imposter syndrome can lead you to mistakenly rule out impactful options. 80,000 Hours co-founder Benjamin Todd laid out four key reasons to be more ambitious with your career if your primary goal is to have an impact. Why many people should be more ambitious in a nutshell. One, if you care about the number of people you can help, it can be worth betting on a small probability of helping a huge number, unlike with personal goals, where most things have more sharply diminishing value. Two, The wide variation in how much good different career paths can do means that low-probability, high-upside scenarios can be the biggest driver of your impact. Though, keep in mind that low-probability, low-downside scenarios can also be a big driver of your impact, which is why it's important to limit downsides. More on that in just a second. Three, aiming high has more information value since you give yourself the chance of being positively surprised. Four, Other actors are more risk-averse, so you'll face less competition. Some steps you can take to limit downsides. You can modify or eliminate options that might have a serious negative impact on the world, cutting off the negative tail, and focus on options dominated by a big upside. You can modify or eliminate options that might have a serious negative impact on you or prevent you from trying again if you fail. You can make sure you have a backup plan, And you can put yourself in a better position to take risks over time by investing in your financial security, skills, and mental and physical health. So because people with imposter syndrome systematically underestimate their abilities, they're often much less ambitious than they could be. They may avoid applying for competitive roles and internships within a given career path because it's less painful to not apply for a role than to get rejected from one. Not only is this a loss in terms of their immediate direct impact, In some cases, the person would have succeeded in the career path or gotten the job or internship. But it can also reinforce their negative imposter syndrome cycle by seeming to confirm their negative beliefs about themselves. If you consider a kind of generic situation, but one that I've been in before, you might imagine thinking about applying for a high-impact job on the 80,000 hours job board. Maybe your underlying belief is, I'm not good enough to do a job that senior. And then you have negative predictions. I'll get rejected if I apply. You might have a self-protective rule. Never apply to jobs on the 80,000 hours job board. That might cause negative feelings, like feeling bad about not having a more impactful job. And then that might confirm your underlying negative belief about yourself. If I don't have an impactful job, it must be because I'm not good enough to do that kind of job well. What's more, for some people with imposter syndrome, This can mean ruling out entire career paths that seem like they're only for more capable or intelligent people. I often hear this about founding new projects tackling top problems. And because some career paths are probably orders of magnitude more impactful than others, ruling out impactful paths because of imposter syndrome could cause someone to leave a lot of impact on the table. Some concrete examples. Laura Pomerius. After reading Doing Good Better, 
Laura Pomerius decided to commit to doing as much good with her career as she could. She applied to an EAGX conference with the aim of learning more about high-impact careers. But once there, she felt everyone else at the conference was much more impressive than she was, despite excelling in her undergraduate studies and being promoted within three months of starting her first job at a mental health startup. Others saw her potential more clearly, and she ended up getting one-on-one advice from our former career advisor, now podcast host, Rob Wiblin. He introduced Laura to community members who encouraged her to apply for four jobs they thought she was a good fit for. To her surprise, she was asked to interview for all four, including with our co-founder and effective altruism thought leader, Will McCaskill, and was offered three job trials, two of which ended with job offers. She accepted one of them as web officer at the Future of Humanity Institute. A year later, when Will McCaskill was looking for someone to help him write his TED Talk, he thought of Laura, who'd impressed him with her interview. After nailing the TED Talk project, Will made Laura yet another job offer. They ended up setting up the Forethought Foundation together. According to Will, Laura increased his impact by a whopping 30% during her time there. But Laura very nearly never did any of that. Because of her imposter syndrome, she'd never have considered aiming for such an ambitious career trajectory on her own. Had she not been pushed to be more ambitious at each step of the way in her journey, she'd probably have had much less impact with her career. John Steinbeck. While writing The Grapes of Wrath, a book that sold 430,000 copies during its first year of publication, was the New York Times bestseller in 1939, and won the National Book Award and a Pulitzer Prize, John Steinbeck kept a diary. Of his future Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Steinbeck wrote, This book has become a misery to me because of my inadequacy. The rest of his diary is full of self-doubt and self-flagellation, with dozens of entries revealing he was convinced that his prior success was a fluke and that his new book would out him as the imposter he was sure he was. Quote, My many weaknesses are beginning to show their head. I'm not a writer. I've been fooling myself and other people. Steinbeck almost certainly suffered from imposter syndrome. Despite positive evidence about his abilities, part of him seemed to believe that he'd tricked people into thinking him to be a great author, not because of his talent and skill, but in spite of his mediocrity. Luckily, Steinbeck didn't let his feelings of inadequacy keep him from finishing Grapes of Wrath or later works like East of Eden, which together earned him a Nobel Prize in literature. But are there missing great novels that weren't written because there would-be authors worried they weren't talented enough to write them? And are there also missing paradigm-shifting papers, for example, that haven't been written because the would-be researchers worry, maybe even despite evidence to the contrary, that they're not smart enough to produce them? Imposter syndrome can reduce your day-to-day impact. According to a meta-analysis of 19 studies, mostly of healthcare professionals, Imposter syndrome is associated with worse job performance, higher stress levels, lower self-esteem, lower overall job satisfaction, higher rates of burnout, less career planning, lower motivation to lead, and lower motivation to take on more responsibility. Given the nature of imposter syndrome, this makes sense. Many, perhaps most people, feel all of these things from time to time. Getting negative feedback can often be hard, even for people with robustly high self-esteem. And lots of people struggle with procrastination for a host of different reasons. But for people who have imposter syndrome, these can be so extreme that they have more significant effects on job performance, and by extension, the amount of impact they're leaving on the table. What does this look like in practice? 
Lower quality work. People with imposter syndrome often worry that any mistakes they make will out them as imposters. As a result, they are less likely to admit and correct mistakes and less likely to seek out feedback on their work. And without feedback, their work ends up lower quality. Difficulty identifying strengths and weaknesses. People with imposter syndrome might also struggle to overcome their actual weaknesses. If they're one, convinced they're bad at everything, and two, too anxious to have any of their suspicions about their weaknesses confirmed. Conversely, they're less likely to leverage their strengths, as they don't believe they're genuine strengths. Lower productivity. Some people with imposter syndrome struggle with procrastination because they desperately want to avoid working on something they're sure they'll fail at. Others work excessively to compensate for their perceived inadequacies, leading to unsustainable work-life balance and sometimes burnout. Aversion to responsibility and advancement. Finally, people with imposter syndrome are less likely to work on ambitious projects, take on more responsibility, and accept promotions, all for fear that they or their colleagues will realize they're not competent enough for more challenging work. How these behaviors can contribute to an imposter syndrome cycle. Imagine a situation where your manager asks you to do a challenging project. You might have the underlying belief that you're not smart enough to do the project well. You might then make negative predictions. My colleagues are going to realize I'm an idiot when they see my output. You might have a self-protective rule, like work overtime to identify every possible criticism your colleagues could make about your output and address those criticisms before they can make them. That might lead to negative feelings, something like, they only liked my output because I worked overtime to perfect it, or I didn't do any of my other work because I spent so much time perfecting this project. And then those can confirm your underlying belief, in this case, that you weren't smart enough to do the project in a reasonable amount of time, and maybe that you're less productive than your other colleagues. Some more concrete examples. Tom Davidson. Tom is a senior research analyst who does research on whether AI might be developed soon, and if so, what the key risks are. Despite going to a top-tier university and working for Open Philanthropy, a very selective foundation, since January of 2020, Tom routinely feels like an imposter. On top of making him much more anxious about his work, his imposter syndrome threatens to affect his actions on a daily basis. He's reluctant to share his work in public because people will think it's flawed, to track and report how long he's spending on his research because he feels he should have had better output in that amount of time, to organize calls with researchers in his field because they'd be surprised at how little he knew, and to take on ambitious projects because he worries he's not good enough to succeed. In addition, he finds it hard to think clearly about his strengths and weaknesses and how he could have the biggest impact due to worrying about whether he's good enough. Tom sees a therapist about his imposter syndrome and it's helped him recognize his perfectionism, challenge the double standards he uses for himself versus others, and to reduce the effect of imposter syndrome on his decisions at work. Jenna Peters. Despite designing a set of tech systems to multiply the impact of 80,000 hours advising team and helping to hire key team members to both 80,000 hours and the Center for Effective Altruism, Jenna still finds imposter syndrome affects her on the day-to-day, Her imposter syndrome makes it harder for her to be as autonomous and ambitious as she otherwise could be. She's noticed she wants to check in with her manager about projects' next steps more often than she thinks is ideal, because what if she messes up and takes the wrong step? And she feels averse to projects when she'll be the final decision maker, 
Because what if she makes the wrong call on a high-stakes project? She's also found that her constant self-doubt makes it harder for her to voice ideas and concerns in team meetings. Because what if she says something obviously wrong or dumb? It also makes it harder for her to think bigger. She barely feels she's managing to do her job as it is. How could she possibly succeed at something even more ambitious? But Jenna's made a lot of progress on her imposter syndrome by working with a therapist to challenge her imposter syndrome-driven beliefs and with her manager to investigate her actual strengths and weaknesses. By doing so, Jenna's found a role at 80,000 Hours that capitalizes on her strengths and that she finds a lot more motivating and satisfying. Imposter syndrome has community-wide effects. Back in 2012, 80,000 Hours helped start the effective altruism community of people trying to do good for the world. The thing is, the entire community loses out when individuals suffer from imposter syndrome. Community members with imposter syndrome are less likely to give talks, write publicly, or mentor others because they're worried others, their audience, or their mentees, will realize they're imposters. They're also more likely to defer to others and less likely to critique dominant ideas because they can't imagine being able to contribute to a field full of seemingly smarter and better informed people. Together, this means the community as a whole gets fewer talks, less research, a smaller talent pool, fewer mentors, and less refinement of its ideas. Here's how that cycle can work. Imagine a situation where someone notices they don't understand why everyone's so worried about AI risks. They think that everyone's missing some important consideration they've noticed. But they might have the underlying belief that they're not smart enough or well-informed enough, and that someone else has probably thought about this objection and dismissed it. They might make negative predictions. If I were to voice my skepticism and people thought it was a dumb argument, people would realize I'm not smart or well-informed. So they might adopt the self-protective rule, don't raise a consideration. And that causes various negative outcomes for the community. Maybe the consideration is actually an important one, and the AI community misses out on it. Or maybe the consideration isn't actually rock-solid, but a bunch of other people have the same confusion. But because it's never raised and discussed publicly, people go on having the same confusion. Some concrete examples. Michaela Sacoccio. Michaela works as the executive director of the Farmed Animal Funders Donor Group, a role with the potential to majorly influence the priorities of the animal welfare movement. Despite being routinely asked to speak at public events and write blog posts about farmed animal philanthropy, Michaela has avoided those opportunities, convinced that she'd be taking space away from more knowledgeable and experienced animal advocates. Michaela told me, quote, I've been executive director of Farmed Animal Funders for over two years now, but I only spoke publicly for the first time about a month ago. I was surprised to hear how much people valued what I had to say, and I now wish I'd embraced opportunities for thought leadership sooner. Will McCaskill. Believe it or not, 80,000 Hours co-founder Will McCaskill struggles with imposter syndrome on a regular basis. Despite being a tenured Oxford professor, writing a successful book on having a big impact, doing good better, and more recently, What We Owe the Future, and founding several organizations doing some of the most promising cause prioritization and community building work we know of, Will still worries that he's not good enough to do the work he's doing. In particular, that he's not smart enough to do it well. Thankfully, imposter syndrome hasn't stopped Will from pursuing a very ambitious career, but it has limited his impact. For example, after writing forum posts on the Effective Altruism Forum, he was incredibly anxious. 
In his 80,000 Hours podcast episode with Rob Wiblin, he describes the anxiety dreams he had for weeks after posting. My dreams would be the most literal anxiety dreams you could imagine, which are people talking and people being like, yeah, we lost all respect for you after you wrote that post. This has been true for non-public writing too. For example, in 2020, while Will and I were working together on his book, What We Owe the Future, he felt unconvinced of arguments he'd heard about the magnitude of global catastrophic biological risk this century. He eventually wrote up his reasons why and shared them with relevant researchers, but doing so caused him a lot of anxiety and interfered with his sleep. He's also had long-standing confusions and skepticism of some areas of current AI risk discussion that he hasn't pursued as much as he might have done, which he thinks is in part because of imposter syndrome. Public disagreement makes it more likely that he'll be shown to be a fraud. In one conversation we had about imposter syndrome, I pointed to the philosophy papers that he'd published in high-ranking journals as counter-evidence. He replied that his brain simply didn't believe that he had actually written those papers. This anxiety around discussing uncertainties and confusion, in public or even just with other researchers, probably means global priorities research is less transparent, slowing down the intellectual progress that can be made when key ideas are scrutinized and refined through discourse. Fortunately, Will's putting effort into pushing back against his imposter syndrome tendencies and sharing his uncertainties and disagreements with other cause prioritization researchers, including ideas he feels more shaky on, so they can be discussed more widely. What you can do if you're struggling with imposter syndrome. If you think you're struggling with imposter syndrome, you're certainly not alone. I'd argue you're actually in pretty good company, as you've heard. And while it's not easy, it's definitely possible to overcome your imposter syndrome, at least in part. Lots of people with imposter syndrome have quite deeply ingrained thought patterns that operate pretty strongly to stop them from really internalizing true, positive things about themselves. It'll take some work to recognize and tackle those thought patterns head on. But as a starting point, here's a collection of advice that my friends, colleagues, and I have found helpful. Things you can start doing right now to challenge your imposter syndrome. To start, I strongly recommend you aim to decouple your self-worth from your productivity and impact, to internalize that you have intrinsic worth no matter how productive you are or how much impact you have. I think this is important for two reasons. One, it's true. And two, by working to cultivate a sense of unconditional self-acceptance, you'll be much better able to look at your abilities with a curiosity-oriented, truth-seeking mindset instead of with your entire self-worth riding on a particular outcome. Talk to your friends, colleagues, and especially your direct manager about your imposter syndrome. Often your manager can support you in overcoming imposter syndrome by agreeing to, one, give you honest feedback, two, challenge you when they think your imposter syndrome is holding you back, and three, encourage you to approach performance and improvement with a growth mindset. Consider working through a CBTU-based workbook. I personally found overcoming perfectionism and overcoming low self-esteem extremely helpful. If you can afford it and are open to it, consider seeing a therapist. A therapist can help you notice the self-protective habits that you're using to keep people from finding out you're an imposter, never sharing early drafts, for example, and then help you experiment with the opposite behavior to see what happens. It can be hard to find a therapist that's a good fit for you, so I'd recommend using the Effective Altruism Mental Health Navigator's list of mental health providers, which has reviews written by members of the community. And again, if you can afford it and are open to it, 
I also recommend you consider seeing a psychiatrist, especially if your imposter syndrome seems exacerbated by depression and anxiety. You might want to experiment with a CBT tool called a STOP, which can help you, one, challenge your biased ways of thinking about your ability, and two, get some perspective if the process of overcoming imposter syndrome ever causes you pain or stress. Try being more open to doing ambitious things that scare you, things like applying for jobs that you feel underqualified for, testing out new skills you might not be good at, or putting your work out there, be it writing, research, startup ideas. They might go well, they might not. Either way, that's valuable information for you. Reduce the financial and professional downside risks of trying out new skills and roles by having a backup plan and investing in your financial security, skills, and mental and physical health. Once you've sufficiently managed downside risks, consider your worst-case scenario and try to get more emotionally comfortable with it. For example, imagine what it'd be like to be discovered as an imposter and fired. Then realize that, in the scheme of things, you'd still probably be okay. Remind yourself that it's someone else's job to figure out whether you're meeting their standards as an employee, so you don't need to constantly feel angst about whether you should quit to save them the trouble of firing you. Remember that public platforms like the Effective Altruism Forum, Less Wrong, Facebook, LinkedIn, and others usually highlight other people's biggest strengths and achievements. This makes it easy to mistakenly imagine other communities and individuals as brilliant, productive, and free of weaknesses. None of these steps are easy. They require a lot of strength and a lot of bravery. But being convinced that you're an imposter doesn't just come with a huge personal cost. It might also be preventing you from doing as much good as you are actually capable of. That certainly was the case for me. I'm by no means cured of my imposter syndrome. I still feel impostery fairly often, including, ironically, while writing this article. Over the course of writing, my lingering imposter fears meant I delayed sharing early drafts with my colleagues, and as a result, I spent time perfecting sections that were later cut. When I did share the draft, I was so worried my colleagues would turn around and tell me it was rubbish that I struggled to focus on my other work. But I'm a lot closer to finding out how to best use my strengths to try to help solve pressing problems than I was two years ago. Two years ago, Louisa wouldn't have written this article at all. So if you think you might be suffering from imposter syndrome, taking some of the steps I've mentioned might just be one of the most important things you can do right now. A huge thank you to Laura Pomerius, Tom Davidson, Jenna Peters, Will McCaskill, and Michaela Sicoccio for sharing their experiences with imposter syndrome. As a final note, we found that imposter syndrome is one of the most common reasons people who could benefit from one-on-one -on -one career advice don't apply for advising. If you think you might struggle with imposter syndrome, we'd like to give you an extra nudge to apply, even if you don't think you've prepared well enough for the call to be maximally useful. We can help you compare options, make connections, and possibly even help you find jobs or funding opportunities. If it doesn't seem like we're the best people for you to talk to, we might be able to put you in touch with someone else or offer you some resources that we think will help. We offer most people we speak to an introduction to someone else or a free book. If you want to learn more about imposter syndrome, I've included a bunch of links that I found helpful when addressing my imposter syndrome at the bottom of the online version of this article. If you enjoyed that, a reminder that you might want to go back and listen through episode 100 on having a successful career with depression, anxiety, and imposter syndrome. 
We also release more audio articles over on our other show, ADK After Hours. Over there, you can currently listen to Preventing Catastrophic Pandemics, a career review on founding new projects, a piece on space governance, and a case for being ambitious. And there'll be more to come in future. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Audio editing for this article by Milo McGuire. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon.